good to see you all. If you are visiting, my name's Matt. Um, I'd love to have a chance to meet you if I haven't met you yet, uh, but we're gonna go ahead and get started. I recently listened uh, to an interview with Rick Rubin, who, if you're not familiar with him, he's one of today's most prolific and probably influential music producers, the founder of Def Jam Records, um, co-founder, I think. Uh, he, he produced a wide array of musical artists from LL Cool J and Run DMC for any Gen Xers in the room, all the way to Weezer and Rage Against the Machine, even Johnny Cash, so quite a left turn there. But produced a, a ton of artists, um, and in the interview, he reiterated something he had said years ago, describing some of his work as a producer. This is what he said, much of my work is trying to be critical without being judgmental. Trying to be critical without being judgmental. That, that is actually a bold take in our society, I think. Is it even possible to critique without being judgmental? Being judgmental has become one of the worst insults you can level against somebody, one of the few unpardonable sins. Be anything you want, just don't be judgmental. And to be honest, there is a way in which, for Christians, this should not be a novel idea. This is the direction our lives are heading. We have sang this truth in multiple songs today. Because we serve a merciful God, we are called into lives of mercy. Maybe we could remember that story where Jesus calls Matthew, a tax collector, um, calls him to follow him, become his disciple. And he gets quite a bit of pushback from the Pharisees who question, well, why are you eating with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus says, that's actually precisely the point. Because those who are well don't need a physician. And then in verse 13 of that chapter, we read this, go and learn, the words of Jesus here, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came to call the righteous, I came not to call the righteous, that is a very different take. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Suffice it to say, mercy is at the heart of God. It's expressed repeatedly in this sermon that we've been working through this spring. Think of the Beatitudes all the way back in Matthew 5, which we sang together a moment ago. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. We think of the Lord's Prayer. Jesus teaches us to confess and repent of sin in this way. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. So we recognize, God, you are a God of mercy and have called us to be people of mercy. So these are some of the issues we turn our attention to again today. But as Jesus addresses the issue of judgment, broadly speaking, and maybe judgmentalism more specifically, I think we find a fairly robust but also complex treatment of this issue. And that's what I want us to explore today. And at the core of the judgmentalism that Jesus warns against is hypocrisy. It's a recurring theme throughout the sermon, which I think is telling. Hypocrisy is a multifaceted reality that we as 
followers of Jesus must always be aware of and working to not only identify in our lives, but also eliminate from our lives. Last week, we considered hypocrisy in terms of spiritual theater. Remember, performative expressions of righteousness and justice used to win the approval of others. That is one perhaps lesser recognized iteration of hypocrisy. Another one, probably the better known type of hypocrisy is the one Jesus addresses now in Matthew 7. And it has to do with the judgments we pass and the condemnation we speak on others. This is what he says at the beginning of chapter 7. Judge not that you be not judged. So it sounds very similar to that beatitude. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Pretty terrifying statement from Jesus. But why is this warning about judgment so critical? I think for for several reasons at least. On one hand, maybe the most obvious, that condemning others for their flaws often proceeds from a place of arrogance. So it's destructive to us. Fleming Rutledge suggested, whenever we are sure that we are among the righteous, we immediately find ourselves among the arrogant. It's a self-defeating position, a painful revelation that while I think that my finely tuned moral compass is flawless, it actually has a glaring blind spot that allows me to walk directly into the sin of self-righteousness. So judgmental condemnation has a tendency to lead me into a very unhealthy place. Furthermore, if I am constantly making condemning judgments about somebody else without taking time to hear and know their story, it is very easy for me to paint them as an evil other, and it becomes very difficult for me to love. This is what Mother Teresa famously said. If you judge people, you have no time to love them. Or at the very least, Our perception of them becomes all wrapped up in the judgments we have made, and we sacrifice the ability to empathize at all. And we have to remember that empathy doesn't necessitate agreement with an idea. It it doesn't flatten all legitimate differences between us. And personally, I don't think that's the goal. But knowing somebody's story might be the most powerful tool we possess to enable love and prevent us from moving into a damning judgmentalism for those with whom we have genuine differences. This is why many are taught from a young age, don't judge somebody until you've walked a mile in their shoes. Because we aren't beings who are devoid of a particular context, and our particular context shapes and informs nearly everything about us. Well, we'll circle back to that in a moment. Let's continue reading in verse 3. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? 
Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your eye, out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. There's often a major discrepancy between our ability to see the sins of others and our willingness to face our own sin. This is an idea that we routinely return to because I think it's necessary. This is such a temptation for us. And, and what is more, at least in my experience, sometimes our harshest critique of others stems from or can stem from a disgust with an issue we see in our own hearts. So it might be helpful when I sense my critical eye coming into focus on somebody else to take notice. Is this something I need to repent of? Is this something I need to move away from? So Jesus is highlighting here something that is very common for us as human beings. When I look at others, I see flaws with the precision of an eagle flying at 10,000 feet, able to spot a mouse in a field. When it comes to my own sin, it's as though I'm still wearing my nighttime eye mask. And yes, I occasionally wear a nighttime eye mask. So that's a little bit of a confession. I've got that eye mask. I can't even see an inch in front of my face. I can completely ignore my flaws. The wisdom of Proverbs 21 diagnoses the problem like this. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes. It's as though the author of this proverb had Twitter. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. Sometimes I am not the most reliable or impartial judge. And according to Jesus, it's not just as though we both have a flaw, but I only see it in you. The situation is actually much more tragically ironic. Not only do I see your sin clearly, but the sin that I completely ignore in here is much greater in severity. It's a log versus some dust. Now, this raises an important but challenging question for us to navigate. Are churches and are we as individuals called to be non-judgmental or no-judgment zones? And yes and no. It is not a simple answer. I think there is more nuance needed. Are we called to suspend all critical faculties? Are we called to turn a blind eye to genuine evil or injustice? Are we called to avoid critique of others or to ignore critique that is directed at us? I think this has all become sort of an a pervasive interpretive framework of this, but I don't think it adequately represents the complexity of this issue that Jesus is getting at, and I also don't know that it's entirely healthy for us. I don't think that what Jesus is saying here is that we can't judge between good and bad ideas, or we can't judge between vices and virtues, or we can't make judgments between logically sound arguments and arguments steeped in logical fallacies. 
each of these processes are important for healthy societies or communities or churches for us to become healthy people. So do not judge must not become do not discern or do not make any sort of judgment at all. That would actually, I think, be an impossibility. But when we make judgments or when we discern, these are not judgments of condemnation directed at the people involved. And maybe this seems like a subtle distinction, but I think it's really important. As followers of Jesus, we do not condemn. We do not damn. But at times, a natural part of being a human being is to make judgments. And to be honest, we need that. We need critique. I need it desperately. And I'll go out on a limb to suggest that you do as well. Because growth is impossible without critique. Now, this doesn't have to be harsh or judgmental. Think about children. Hopefully, this is done in a way that is gentle and guiding. But even the notion of guiding a child is um, coming to terms with the fact that the current path is errant and things need to be uh, centered back in a healthy direction. Or think of learning a new job or becoming a musician or playing a sport. Athletic teams have coaches because the athletes need objective eyes that have a different vantage point and are able to identify ways in which an athlete is making a minor error in something like footwork. But that misstep in a minuscule detail is leading to mediocre or poor performance. And tweaking that one thing, a split-second motion, could completely change the outcome not only of a play, but maybe the outcome of a game that is on the line. But that error might only be noticed by a very discerning eye. In the moment, the athlete doesn't necessarily notice it, but somebody charged with this responsibility can see and correct it. Now, in this analogy, of course, the coach and the athlete have the same goal. And I, I think that's important to stress. In our discernment, the goal is the same. We want health. The athlete and the coach are on the same team. They hope not only to win the game, but the coach hopes to develop the player into the best version of themselves. The analogy, of course, breaks down because in the conversation we are having, the coach is also subject to or in need of just as much critique as the player. But it is always critique or discernment from a place of care and concern. Now, on one hand, I think there is an implicit reminder from Jesus here that the church is not a conflict-free utopia of perfection. We can do away with that Idea. Jesus shows us that there is going to be problematic behavior. There is going to be relational tension. Yes, there will be sin in the church. It will rear its ugly head among his followers. This is not a community of perfection, but one of constant renovation. So we aren't surprised if we experience tension. We aren't surprised if others bemoan the issues they have with the church. That actually makes sense to me because there are significant issues in the church. Eugene Peterson famously said, there's nobody who doesn't have a problem with the church because there's sin in the church. 
That's not to excuse it, but we do need to come to terms with that. There is need for renovation in here. There is need for renovation in here. This is an imperfect body Jesus welcomes us into, and a community of renovation means change is needed. And if change is needed, judgments on some level, discernment will have to take place. But why do we have a tendency? So going back to the words of Jesus, why do we have a tendency to take this need for discernment and this need for judgments to be made and lean into judgmentalism and condemnation? So this is the tension that we are trying to exist with. Why do we do this? I think for several reasons. On one hand, I think maybe we get a bit of a rush from our noble indignation. We feel good about being on the right side of an issue and somebody else isn't. I feel righteous. And that doesn't have to be a religiously motivated righteousness, but I see myself as righteous compared to that evil other. And that is a wicked impulse. So can we be courageous enough to ask, is this where my judgments or my discernment is coming from? And am I really feeling good about this process? Or maybe it is the, the witch hunt effect. If you studied the, the Salem witch trials in high school, you probably remember that one of the dynamics that caused the rapid spread of these allegations was the realization that the only way to prevent being accused yourself was to level an accusation against somebody else. Well, I'll announce to everybody that I'm in the clear. I'm just going to shift the blame onto somebody else. If I can get their attention focused on them, I will be good. I, I think this is actually behind much of the judgmentalism that we wrestle with, at least it is for me. If I can condemn somebody else, the attention moves away from me. There's a need, though, to get the sawdust out of the eye. So again, this is the tension that we're sitting with. If we leave sawdust in the eye, it's uncomfortable, may prevent clear vision, may even lead to long-term damage of the eye. Jesus says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. I don't think Jesus is suggesting that discernment is evil. So you do you, and it's not helpful for us to pretend that there is no difference between justice and injustice. This whole sermon is revealing that there is a particular way of life that Jesus is calling his followers into. And we trust that that is good. But there is noticeable, genuine difference between the values of God's kingdom as described in this sermon and the values of the kingdoms of this world. And we must be willing to recognize that. I mean, if we just read one additional verse, verse 6, so we stopped at verse 5, if we read verse 6, and then down in verse 15 of the same chapter, but we see Jesus call on his people to use their critical faculties, to exercise discernment, but to do so in healthy ways. Verse 6, do not give dogs what is holy, 
and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. And then down in verse 15, we read strong critique of certain religiously motivated leaders, which is a, a text that is very important for somebody like me to really sit with and take very seriously. Verse 15, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in to the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. A direct instruction from Jesus to discern and judge by the fruit one is bearing. So when we read the first statement Jesus makes in this chapter, do not judge, it's a little bit more nuanced than that because Jesus has not only modeled judgment that it is necessary, but pointed the spotlight at us. Judgment is necessary, and it begins here. This is how Rich Volotis put it. He said, Jesus' harshest words in the Gospels were consistently aimed at religious leaders who focused on everyone's exterior behavior but never looked at the interior of their own hearts and the systems of hurt they perpetuated. A beautiful summation of what I think Jesus is getting at here. We must never take these words from Jesus and use them or apply them in a way that insulates us from critique or buffers us from the consequences of our own sin. That is a misappropriation of what Jesus is saying here. So I think we find that on one hand, unrestrained criticism that heads in the direction of judgmentalism, and then an allergy to criticism altogether are two sides of the same unhealthy coin. One is unhealthy because it completely diminishes the dignity of the one being condemned and leads me into a place of self-righteous contempt, and that is evil. The other is unhealthy because growth requires critique. So maybe we could sum up or think about this balancing act in this way. Don't be judgmental in your judgments or discernment. Discern, but don't damn. Voice disagreements. Have conversation about it, but do not condemn. It is not our place and we don't have the ability to do that in an impartial way. We leave judgment, ultimate judgment, to God alone. Now, even that, though, can make us feel uncomfortable. We don't want others to judge us. I also don't know that I'm super comfortable with God as judge, especially if he's going to judge like we read in the, the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. When those who show up right at quitting time get the same pay, even though I was here working all day, sweating and laboring. This is how Fleming Rutledge put it. 
in her, and she has a couple of chapters that are so good in this conversation if you're interested in more study in this, but she put it this way. So God being judge is a two-edged sword. On the one hand, it slices the way we like because God is for us. But on the other hand, it slices in a way we don't like because he is also for everyone else without the usual distinctions. And that means no more A-list and B-list, and therefore no more building up of our own egos at someone else's expense. So we affirm, as we read through the biblical story, we see the theme of judgment time and time again. In the Apostles' Creed, that we voice together regularly, we affirm that God will judge the living and the dead. God's judgment is a central theme throughout the Bible. Judgment will come for all. But because of the cross of Jesus Christ, as Paul says in Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There will be judgment, an ultimate judgment, but central to God's judgment are his love and mercy. The point is not condemnation, but deliverance from the powers of sin into everlasting life. At the beginning of our time today, I mentioned that mercy is at the heart of God, and I believe that's true even in his judgment. Fleming Rutledge put it this way. She, she argued that the biblical theme of God's judgment upon sin is actually an aspect of his mercy, not the opposite of it. For God to be for us and for our salvation, God must be against all that would threaten or destroy that purpose. But it is God alone who is judge. So we discern, it's a normal part of life to make judgments between good ideas and bad ideas, between virtues and vices. We discern, but we do so without judgmentalism. The, the point is that we often lack the ability to reliably execute justice on others in a way that is concerned with their good and their salvation. We often don't even have the power or ability to do that for ourselves. Because again, as Jesus said, the sawdust in my sister's or brother's eye looks catastrophic while I don't even notice the sequoia in my own. We are not the most impartial judges. At times, unable to even discern what is ultimately for our good and for our salvation. So recognizing that, we move into a posture where we refuse to condemn. We discern, yes, we spur one another on. We allow the iron of our lives to sharpen the iron of others and vice versa. We want to willingly submit to scrutiny, to correction, to calls to repentance, to return to the way of God's reign, but we do not condemn. We trust that God alone is the judge of all peoples and all nations, and he is a judge that can be trusted. Would you stand as we gather around the table of our Lord to celebrate?
Lord, we again thank you in this moment for the instruction that we find in our scriptures directly from you. And as we think about this short section in Matthew 7 and continue to wrestle with the complexities and the nuances we find there, we ask that ultimately we would return to the reality that you are a God of mercy and have called us into lives of mercy. We ask you for forgiveness for times in which we have condemned or damned others who are made in your image. Forgive us for our tendency to quickly move from discerning into judgmentalism. As we accept with open hands, open hearts, the mercy that you lavish upon us, give us the strength and grace to be conduits of that mercy to those we come into contact with. That it might be said of us what Chesterton said of St. Francis, that we might walk the earth as the pardon of God. We accept your mercy. We rejoice in the reality that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. And we pray that we might become ministers of that reconciliation and mercy. God, the King of glory. You have exalted your only Son, Jesus Christ, with great triumph to your kingdom in heaven. Do not leave us comfortless, but send us your Holy Spirit to strengthen us and exalt us to that place where our Savior Christ has gone before, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God in glory everlasting. Amen. We're going to make two lines down these center aisles. We invite you to join us at the table of our Lord. When you get to the front, the words will be spoken over you, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. If you are in need of prayer for a specific issue in your life, whatever that might be, Josh and Kara will be available right over here on this side of the sanctuary. Um, they'd love to join you in prayer. Body of Christ broken for you blood of Christ shed for you. There is therefore now no condemnation, no condemnation for you, no condemnation for you to speak. We celebrate in the gift of our Lord today.